So today I'm going to be starting a two-part series. This is the last of the questions that, remember, at the beginning of the year, we started off with a bunch of questions that were asked about the Bible and different topics. This is the last of those questions, um, and I, I, I kind of kind of saved it, and it's interesting with, with all the things that are happening in our uh, in our world and in our, our day today that this would land today. It was kind of interesting. We're going to be talking about the power of peace. Uh, and this week, we're going to be talking about peace in a very specific way. I've titled this one, Some Things Are Worth Fighting For. So we're going to be talking about relational peace. Because one of the things I've learned over the years is a lot of people, a lot of the stress that people have in their life, a lot of the, a lot of the, the, the difficulties that they go through, they're not necessarily circumstantial. They're, they're, they're largely relational. And what I mean by that is not just, you know, like, I don't have any friends. Now, if you don't have any friends, that's kind of your choice, but that's, but that, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about people that you, you do know, relationships that you do have that somehow are strained. And you don't know what to do about it. And you think, you know, geez, I've, I've known this person for so long and now they don't like me. And, and, and you get these stories going on in your head and you kind of build up this stuff and you end up distancing yourself and now you're all alone, which is exactly where the devil wants you because of a thought you might have had and because we didn't actually do what the Bible tells us to do about gaining and keeping and thriving in peace. And relational peace is so completely important. It is so central to your faith. And I mean central to your faith, that relational peace. There's a parable that we're going to be dealing with next week um, uh, when, when, when the shepherd leaves the 99 to go get the one. And people like to talk about that. And like, oh, that's so great. Jesus saw so he leaves the 99 and goes and gets the one. You know, the, 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 the reckless love of God, whatever. <laughs> but one of the things that we forget about that parable, the point of going to get the one was to bring it back to the 99. It was to bring it back to the group. It was to take the one who walked away from the church and bring them back, not just to faith, but to the church. To the relationship of the community of faith. That was the point of going to get him. If he was, if he was fine on their own, it would have been fine. But that's not the shepherd knew. On their own, they're weak and easy to target. And it's the same thing with our faith. But you think about this, when you think about the type of peace the Bible talks about, it's really hard to find. And honestly, it's hard to find in the church sometimes. Jesus says, my peace, I leave you. My, my peace, I leave you? Well, how about Philippians 4, 7? Peace that passes all understanding. But really? We're supposed to have that? That's awesome. Where is it? <laughs> How do you get, is there a pill? You know, I mean, is there, is there something we need to do? Is there a specific hymnal we're supposed to use that's, that's going to bring that kind of peace? When you think about the political, racial, social nonsense going on, the type of discord that gets sowed between friends, we got stuff going on in our own town that has caused people who have known each other and cared about each other their whole life to begin to hate each other over nonsense. Nonsense. We sacrifice our relationship for what? Tradition? It's not worth it, folks. It's not worth it. The relationship is so central, but we do this all the time. We think relationships are secondary. I can get other friends. (laughs) I've got news for you, man. If you're over 40, no, you can't. (laughs) No, you can't. You can try, (laughs) but it don't work. Actually, you get over 30, it gets really difficult. 
because you're kind of set in your ways. You want that person who knows you. <laughs> it's kind of like being married for 25, 30 years. You're like, you know, uh, you, you guys are going to stay together, right? You're absolutely right. I don't want other people to know what she knows. <laughs> she knows way too much about me. You're crazy. Uh-uh. Relationships are the same way. We've got to keep them things together. But now think about this. Now, I saved this to this time of year for a couple different reasons. Um, uh, now the elections weren't part of it, but it's kind of funny the way things are happening. But also, this is a time of year, um, therapists will, will tell you this, this is a time of year where depression thrives. It, it thrives. Mostly because our government has decided to turn the sun off early. And we're literally in darkness for an extended period of time, which is awesome. But depression thrives, anxiety thrives. And we're entering that time of year where there's these wonderful holidays that bring family together so they have whole new reasons to hate each other. Right? Thanksgiving? Thanksgiving, it's over. I don't want to go to that house again. I want to just choke down some more of that squash. <laughs> what if my sister's husband's there? Oh, gosh. What if my sister's there? Ah! <laughs> but now, it's funny to think, you know, as it gets darker, our lives can get darker. But I actually think that the reason why depression and anxiety and 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 issues between relationships thrive so much in this time of year, honestly, it's because it's an evil time of year. Now, some of you know I came from a witchcraft background. Believe me when I tell you, most Christians don't even, don't have no concept of this. This is an evil time of year. It is an absolutely evil time of year. This is one of the only times of the year where not just in the United States where people celebrate Halloween, but I'm talking about all over the world where evil is lifted up and celebrated as though it's a game. It's disturbing in a lot of different ways. But we think it's just good fun. It, it, it's not. It's, it's not. You open yourself up to things that you probably don't even understand. When people think, oh, that stuff's not real. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And it's trying to find a place in your heart. And we need to be careful these times of year because this is the kind of stuff happens. This is why I wanted to talk about relationships during this time of the year because I think it's just that much more important. Because the thing that can actually keep us from wandering away into those things is each other. It's each other. It's our friendships. It's our connections. Now, I think one of the reasons why we are so susceptible to these issues during this time of year. And I want to I I tread carefully here, but I also need to say something very plain. One of the reasons why I think in the fall, especially in the church, people can be really susceptible to depression, anxiety, and relational struggles is because over the late spring and summer, we disconnect from the church, especially in this area, because the weather's good. Got to take advantage of that weather while you have it. So Sunday becomes the sacrifice for you to have a good time over the summer. You know, I'll come to church as long as it's not nice out. I'll come to church as long as the water's not warm. 
I'll come to church as long as the boat isn't already gassed up and in the water. I'll come to church if the message is shorter. Really? These are things I, that, that I, I hear. Hey, is it possible to start church at 9 o'clock in the summer? Why? You still wouldn't come till 930? <laughs> really? You know? It's like, you know, I'm trying to time it. Is worship a half an hour or 25 minutes? Because I don't want to miss the first part of the message. <laughs> Seriously? You see, we disconnect and we get an excuse in our mind that we need to take advantage of the good weather. But here's what happens. In the fall, we disconnect because we've got to take advantage of the hunting season. And in the winter, we disconnect because we've got to take advantage of the, all the snow because I got to sled. You know, you got to, you got to use the snowmobile when it's, when it, there's snow there. That only happens for six months of the year. We can find so many excuses to not be here for our two hours on a Sunday that we would never use in any of our other personal pursuits. We would never use those things. You know, I'd have my kid's birthday party if the boat wasn't in the water. I'd go to your wedding if it wasn't nice out. We would never think about the excuse. And they're excuses, folks. They're excuses. I'm saved. I'm good with God. That's great. Come here and tell him. Could you imagine getting married and then never going home to be with your spouse? I mean, some of you are like, ha <laughs> You're not married at that point. You're actually abusing a relationship at that point. And with the direction our world is going, the direction our state is going, Christians need to be better than that. And we don't get that way being alone. Now, I get it. There are things that sometimes just have to be done. I get it. But there are things that don't. And we're really good at making the things that don't more important than the things that do. We end up knowing about Jesus, but not knowing Jesus. It's like a friend who was so close to you for so long, and then your lives diverged, and then you come back together every now and then to catch up. You know, those five times you actually managed to make it to church on a Sunday throughout the year. And me and Jesus are just catching up today. You know what's even better when you don't have to catch up? Because you're stayed together. That, wouldn't that be great? It's important that we walk into things that way. Because when you unintentionally disconnect, and I do believe it's unintentional. I don't think anyone's just like, I'm going to be gone so long, I don't even recognize the church. <laughs> I don't know anyone who's ever been that way. But what ends up happening, and COVID was a tremendous eye-opening example of this. When you disconnect for a period of time, and then you come back, it feels weird. Because things changed. I've had people straight up tell me they didn't come back to the church after COVID because when they came back once, everything was different and it didn't feel right. And they didn't, and they, listen, they didn't want to have to start over. So what did they do? They went somewhere else and started over. 
Are you kidding? Come on. But here's what happens. We, we think that nothing changes without our permission. And then we're gone for a little while, and the world keeps going without asking. <laughs> and then we come back. Things are different. But they're not different to the people who stayed. Want to know why? Because they stayed through the whole thing. They were there for it. See, it's just easier to maintain than it is to skip and hope everything works out. And that's not God's plan for us. And that causes a lack of peace. One of the other issues that messes with our peace and our relational peace is that we don't often do what God's word says to maintain that peace. See, sometimes we get a lack of peace. It's our own fault. You know, things, things happen. We made a choice that took us away from the place that can provide us peace. And other times, chaos comes and knocks on our door and we don't do what God tells us to do to maintain that peace. Because it's not fun. So our first step is to understand what is this thing we're even talking about. What is peace? Peace is a very misunderstood topic. Sometimes we believe that peace is the absence of conflict. If I just don't get involved, I will have peace. If there's chaos all around me and I just close my eyes, plug my ears, and then I will have peace. Let me help you understand how wrong this is. Husbands. See, you, I don't even have to finish. You already know. You did something that caused a lack of peace in the household. Your wife comes to you because she wants to deal with it, and you do this. La, 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 la. Do you have peace or a free trip to the ER? You might have patience, but that's because you now are a patient. No, pretending that the problem doesn't exist does not give you peace. It actually gives you anxiety because you know full well at some point you're going to deal with this. One way or the other. And the Bible tells us to do it today. Now. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. You got something going on in your life. You got something going on with somebody else. Deal with it today. Don't sleep on it. Because if you sleep on it, it's not that important tomorrow. And then five years from now or 10 years from now or 20 years from now, it suddenly becomes important because all that stuff you slept on, it's coming out. And that's usually when the people around you are going, I don't even know what happened. They just exploded. And all of a sudden it was like this parfait of crazy just layers and layers. And then they said something like, 1,800 years ago, you did this and I was offended. You don't even remember. You know one of the craziest things in marriages that happens? Ladies, I hope you, I hope you listen to this. When you're really mad about something and you look at your husband and you go, you know exactly what you did. And he gives you this look and you realize, no, he doesn't. He has no clue what, it, what, what he did. Really needs your help at that point. Because <laughs> he's going, his mind is playing 10 different movies in his head like, I have no idea what just happened. Because you didn't tell him. And it probably happened a month ago. 
Now, if you look at the meaning of the Hebrew word for peace, it's shalom. You, and I'm going to do this really quick because you guys have heard me talk about this for, uh, before. The Hebrew word shalom is com- comprised of four words. In the Hebrew language, every letter has an underlying meaning. This is how they actually combine the letters to make the meaning of the word. You know, you think when language was first beginning, it wasn't like, I think we should come up with an I. Everyone good? I, yes. Now in Canada, it was, it was, it was like an I, yes, I, A. So, uh, you know, I, we should have a D, yes, A. And uh, anyway, moving along. It's an old joke how Canada got its name. Had a bag of letters, and someone's like, we're going to pick the letters out of the bag, okay? Got a C, eh? <laughs> got an N, eh? <laughs> I knew you guys would get it eventually. Moving right along. There's someone watching in Canada that just cut me right off, and you're like, now nah, we're done. You jerk. But all of the letters have a, an underlying meaning. So when you put those meanings together, you actually formulate the word. So the word... For shalom is shin, lamed, vav, and mem. And they basically break down like this. Shin is to destroy. Lamed is authority. Vav is to bound or bind. And mem is chaos and confusion. So the underlying man, the, uh, 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 message of peace, it's not the absence of conflict. It's the destruction of the authority that has bound you to chaos and confusion. Destruction. Destruction is a purposeful act. Peace is not the absence of conflict. Peace is the presence of godly conflict. You find peace through godly conflict. When God wanted peace for Israel, he did not send them into the land and say, just pretend all those other nations don't exist. It's not what he said. He said, go in and wipe them out. Or you will have no peace. And of course he was right. Because God is always right. More to the point, it's a godly confusion brought to its godly conclusion. It's a godly conflict brought to its godly conclusion. Meaning that we need to understand that God has a desire for conflict that we have to enter into. There are points in your life where you're going to have to enter into a conflict and God has a desire for the outcome of that conflict. Sometimes we focus on the method of the conflict. That's not what we're supposed to do. We should be focusing on God's intention for the outcome of the conflict. That will guide your actions in the midst of it. Instead of, drive them from the land. (laughs) That's not the rally cry that every Christian should have. Okay? Now, it's easy to look at the Old Testament and get the idea that we're supposed to, you know, if we have an enemy, we're supposed to crush them into the dust of oblivion. That's not what we're supposed to do. But one of the things we have to remember is that doing nothing is never God's desire for his people. When a conflict arises, a challenge arises, difficulty arises, nothing is never the answer. It's never the answer. God's people were never told to just stand there and die bravely. Paul even says, I fought the good fight. I ran the race. He fought the good fight because some things are worth fighting for. How many of you ever put off a confrontation? or a really difficult conversation, or an offense because you wanted to avoid a conflict. You see something, something happens to you, someone does something, someone says something, and you decide, ah, you know what? Not that big a deal. I'm just going to bury this. How'd it work out for you? In my experience, it never works out. Because at some point in time, that person's going to do something again, and now... You usually blow up at them 
for something really insignificant because there's so much baggage on the back end of it. You've just, you've just, I've got to had all I can stands and I can't stands no more. Where in reality, if you just dealt with it to begin with, wouldn't be that big of a deal. I know more people who have quit jobs over the most ridiculous thing that day because they've been mad for months over not, and stuff the managers didn't even know and they probably would have dealt with. But yeah, I just had enough. I'm done. When we don't protect peace, well, I should say it this way. We don't protect peace by avoiding the conflict. We protect peace by quickly stepping into that conflict with God's intent, with humility, with caution, and with love for the other person. That's how we protect peace. That's how we protect our relationships. Not by not arguing, but by arguing God's way. There is a right way to argue. Anyone who's ever been through marriage counseling with me understands this is one of the first things we deal with. Here's how you fight. I usually get this that question, huh? This is how to fight? Yes, this is how to fight. Because you get married long enough. <laughs> you guys have no idea. <laughs> You're going to fight, okay? And there's a right and there's a wrong way to do it. The right way to do it is to protect the marriage, to protect the relationship. So one of the things we look at very commonly, and this is, this is probably the most common section of Scripture when you deal with issues between believers. It's Matthew chapter 18, 15 through 17. It reads like this. It says, if another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. If, that, if, the, uh, if the other person listens and confesses it, you have won that person back. But if you are unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. If the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. Then if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. That's awesome, isn't it? This is coming from Jesus. Yikes. <coughs> That's awesome. Now, most people see this section of scripture and they immediately think church discipline, right? This is how the church disciplines its members. I want to challenge that because I don't think that's the intent. I don't think discipline was Jesus' intent in this passage. I think Jesus' intent in this passage was redemption. Was redemption. And I'm going to show you this over the next couple of weeks. But you think about this. There's basically four steps that we look at. And when I had this first explained to me, it was explained to me as this is basically in the way of like, this is how you get kicked out of a church. Like, oh, okay. So let's figure out all the steps here. The first, fact, uh, first step is go to them. And you go to them like, look, man, I'm giving you a chance to come clean. <laughs> That's not how you're supposed to go to the person. I'm giving you a chance to cough it up and, and do the right thing, man. And if you don't, I got a witness around the corner. <laughs> and they're going to come and now we're going to give you a chance. And they're going to be here to prove it. The third thing is you tell the church. You know, so obviously the way you do this is you confront someone in the parking lot as soon as they get out of their car. And if they don't repent immediately, you bring them over to your friend's car. And after that, you walk them right into the church. And if they don't repent before the church, you boot them out as they say. So you crush them into the dustbin of history. 
Is, is that how this is supposed to work? No. <laughs> Give me a break, man. Now, for a long time, this was called being disfellowshipped. Anyone ever been in a church where they talked about that? Be careful, you may be disfellowshipped. More legalistic groups tend to stick with this. And unfortunately, someone who has been disfellowshipped, if you're still in the church, you can be disciplined for maintaining a relationship with that person. It's crazy. The Amish communities are probably the most like harsh on this. They disfellowship someone. You're not allowed to even talk to them, whether they're your kids or not. It's, it's insane. And they use these passages to validate it. You think about stuff like this. Young men and women who've had moral failures. Out. Expel the immoral brother. People who live together but haven't gotten married. <gasps> Heathens. You tax collectors. Out. People whom the church learned occasionally drank alcohol. Like Jesus did. Out. People who disagree with the pastor. I'm so glad that has never happened here. <laughs> Out. Shunned. <laughs> right? It's not the way this works. Abel got it. Yep. Now here's something I can tell you. In almost 30 years of being a Christian, I have never seen Matthew 18 applied appropriately from top to bottom. I've never seen it. I've always seen it used as a club. Always. And I hate it. I absolutely hate it. The fact that that is a reality, I think, is, shame, is, a shame, is a shame. And that's one of the reasons why I started looking at this passage differently. And I started seeing something, that this isn't about discipline. This is about winning the brother back. It's about redemption. It's not the process of getting someone you don't like out of the church. It's the process of getting someone who is struggling back to a place of strength. Now you think about this. If you look at other translations of Matthew 18, verse 15, it says this. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault. That's the New American Standard. The NIV says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. Now, one of the, here's the thing that's missing. Against you. Against you. In about half the manuscripts that are available that we get our translations from, the words against you are not there. It just simply says, if they sin or if they fall or if they're struggling, go to them privately and make it known to them. And if you, if you, if you, if you do it right, you win them back. You see, that's not discipline. Because what this is telling me is when you see someone struggling with something, when you see someone going to, going through something, you go to them whether it affects you or not. It's not about whether or not it bothers you. It doesn't matter if it was you. You noticed it. God brought it to your attention. You understand. You see what's going on in that person's life. You have an obligation to them. To go to them and say, hey, I, 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 I want to make sure that I'm seeing this right. You know, are you okay? Are you and so-and-so okay? Are you, are you struggling with this? Is there something I can help you with? That is a moral obligation that we have to one another. To hold one another up. It doesn't matter if that person directly offended you or not. 
And what you don't do is find five or six other believers to share your opinion with before you go talk to that person because you want to make sure you got it right. Don't do it. Because the Jesus said, don't do it. Go to them first. And we go to them first for a couple different reasons. The first reason you go is you have to kill that thing before it finds a home in your heart. You have whatever it is you see, whatever it is that happened, you got to kill that thing before it finds a home in your heart. Because when it finds a home in your heart, it will begin to grow. And now you're going to start viewing that person through the lens of whatever it is you saw. And the second reason is even more important. You might be wrong. You may not have seen what you think you've seen. The, the, the opinion you have may not be right. Now what happens if you just sit on it? And it not only becomes an opinion, it becomes a fact of their life. They're this kind of person. And you start judging them based on something you may have heard from somebody else who shared their thoughts with you. And not only are you basing your opinion off of whatever was shared with you, you don't even know if they were right. The Bible is very clear. We only have one recourse when something happens in the beginning. You go to that person first alone. And when someone comes to you and says, hey, I have this, I saw this thing. I have this concern about this person and I want to know if I, you, ah! that's when la, 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 la becomes handy. You tell that person, I'm not interested. Have you gone to that person first? Well, no, I just want to, I just want to make sure you want to gossip. That's what you want to do. You want to gossip because you think you got something juicy on that person and you're not looking for someone to help you bring them back to repentance. You're looking for an ally. Here's the truth of the matter. When you go to someone without first going to that person who has the issue, you're not looking to help them. You're looking for an ally. You want to find someone who believes what you believe so that you feel better about the position you have. Now who's sinned against who? Because at that point, you better be right. Because if you're not, you get the wonderful humble pie to go back and correct your mistake to all the people you shared with. This is how discord gets sowed in the church. When we refuse to fight for peace the way God wants us to fight for peace. Some things are worth fighting for. And our relationships have to be at the top. And sometimes that means telling a friend of yours, you're wrong in what you're doing right now. You're wrong and you need to go back and not only repent to God for doing this, but repent to the person you're having that issue with. And you need to do what God says and go to that person immediately. Now, I've had a couple conversations with people where they wanted to talk to me about something and I've stopped them. And it's very interesting because the conversation usually goes something like this. I'm going to give you a week to go talk to that person. And in a week, if you haven't, I will. So you've got a choice. You can deal with them on your own <laughs> or I will force the issue because this isn't going to happen. That's not fair, Pastor. You're right, it's not. It's not fair that you brought me into this. Go do the right thing. Now, there are people in this world 
who will purposely do hurtful things. They exist. We call these jerks. There are other names, but we're going to stick with jerk. Okay? But I, I got to be honest with you. The idea that someone got out of bed in the morning and thought, I'm going to find a way to make your life miserable. That is so unbelievably rare. I can't wait to ruin this friendship. Oh, I've been wanting to destroy this friendship for years. This just doesn't happen. What I've found, and if you, if you come across something different, please let me know, but this is, this is, this is my experience. Almost 100% of the time when someone does something that offends you, they don't even know it happened. They're almost clueless that it even happened. But what, so now what do you do? A lot, of, a lot of relationships get torn apart because of unintentional offense. Someone makes a joke that you took personally. Someone, someone make, uh, makes, makes light of something that was hurtful to you. And what do you do? We internalize it. That person didn't want to hurt you. They simply made the mistake of saying something that was hurtful and they didn't know. Marriages go through this a lot. I mean, I don't know if you realize this, ladies, but we don't think a lot before we speak. Okay? It's a gift that guys have. Our brain usually works in reverse. Speak, think about what we just said. Ah, crap. <laughs> Is this flowers, dinner, or vacation? <laughs> Some of you ladies are going, ooh, I like the rating scale. No. Now, it's simply, but it, it's, it's, now, let me give you an example about, about what I mean by this. When, when people get offended and don't say something. This is a silly but real example. This actually happened to me. Have you ever had someone get mad at you because you, they were having a difficult time and you didn't reach out to them? They were going through a struggle and you didn't come to their aid. And now they're mad at you. And when you ask them, what, did I do something? I mean, what, 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 what's going on here? And they say, I, you didn't even know that I was going through this. They say, I, did you tell me that you were going through this? And they say, I put it on Facebook and I know you saw it. And so you go back through Facebook and you find the post and the post says, ugh. <laughs> or not again. Or OMG. Like, like we're supposed to know what that means. I don't even respond to those because if you don't have enough moral character to actually be honest about it, stop fishing. Get a backbone. Talk to your friends. Talk to your husbands. Oh, he knows. No, he doesn't. Trust me, he doesn't. And guess what? I don't. I now. I love Star Wars. Jedi mind trick, not something I have. <laughs> the ability to use the force on you to get you to tell me all the things that you should be telling, I have no idea what that is. Can't do it. You know what I know? What I'm told. And when someone tells me something about someone else, I don't even listen. Because here's something I've learned over the years. Some people are very private about their lives. 
and they don't want a ton of people knowing. I've got to respect that. If they want, if they have a support group that they're comfortable with and that's who they want to walk through, I have no right to jump into the middle of that. So as a pastor, I always make myself available to anyone who's in need, but I'm not going to force my way into your life any more than God or Jesus would. It's not right, but the help is there. But see, you got to be willing to actually ask. So when you see someone struggling with an issue or with sin, there is no situation in that avenue where God is okay with you doing nothing. When it becomes available to your mind, you either ask the question or spend some time praying for that person. Do you understand? You should be available to them. And one of the other reasons why that we, we do this, it's the same as, as before. When you see someone struggling, you should want to help them as much as you would want to be helped if it was you. And secondly, you might be wrong. Do you see a reoccurring pattern when it comes to mental judgments we make towards other people? You might be wrong. That person hasn't been to church in a long time. Obviously, they've backslidden. No, maybe their job took them out of state for a little while. (laughs) You know, weird, right? It happens. But this is why we ask. This is why we ask the questions. You go to that person. Can I help you with this? I've noticed X, Y, Z, and I just want to make sure you're okay. And I don't want to get the wrong opinion. So I'm doing what the Bible says, and I'm, I'm, I'm coming to you as a friend. See, at that point, if we just do what God tells us to do right at the beginning, go to that person. We've done something amazing. If the person still, ref- uh, well, uh, um, we, we've, we may have won that, that person back. But now if those people refuse absolutely refuse to get their life right. There are people like that. Sometimes you get caught in sin to the point where you don't want to let go of that sin. I can give you a ton of examples for that. Pornography, alcoholism, the immoral lifestyles of people that we might be close to. You know, I don't want to draw close to Jesus because Jesus says these lifestyles are sin. What a dumb answer. The whole point to draw close to Jesus is so we can understand those issues and reach out to that person and bring them back to the faith. That's the point. That's the process of redemption. Now check this out. If the person refuses, says the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. If she, he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. And we think that means get that person out of our life. That is not what that means. Let me ask you something. How do you reach out to a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to bring them to faith and redemption and forgiveness, repentance. You treat them like someone who doesn't know Jesus. And what do people who don't know Jesus need? (laughs) They need Jesus. You don't cast them out of the church. You put them back on the pray for me list. (laughs) You start bringing that person back to faith. We've never, are we told to just let that person go to hell? We're not told that. We're told to fight for that person. Pray fervently for that person. Intercede for that person. Bring them back. Even when Paul says, put those people out so the devil may sift them. We think, yeah, sift them, devil. 
The purpose of the devil sifting them was to bring them to repentance. Read the rest of the passage. It's redemption, not revenge. (laughs) But we love the idea of revenge. Go into the land and wipe them out. No. Go into the land and lead them to Jesus. That's the point. Jesus is not telling us that here's the four steps to get people out of the church. Jesus is saying, here are the four things you need to do to try to save someone who's struggling and bring them back into the fellowship of the community of faith. And it starts very simple. Go to them alone and make sure you know what you're fighting for. It's important that we follow his guidelines. Faith in Christ is not a path to a mistake-free or even a sin-free life. And folks, we need to understand this. If you think as a Christian, you're just gonna walk through life sin-free, you've already sinned. It's called pride. You will have issues in your life, and if you don't, your kids and your spouse will. And believe me, your day will come. (laughs) It's just the way it works. We all make mistakes, we will all offend, and we will all be offended by others until the day we leave this life for the next. We're all human. We're all bound to the failures of human of humanity. When we make these inevitable mistakes, you will need others to help pick you up. And when you, uh, when you fall, just like they will need you to pick them up when they fall. The road of faith is not, a, not for the spectator. And only a fool would choose to walk alone. Read the parable of the Good Samaritan. There was only one that was righteous and it was the one that stopped and helped. When we walk together, we walk in strength. But more importantly, we walk in peace. Because we know that we're walking with people who will fight for us. And they know that we will fight for them. You find yourself feeling disconnected. You find yourself feeling alone. It might be because you've actually disconnected and are alone. That may be exactly what's happened. And that's right where the enemy wants you. Disconnected and alone. You're an easy target when you're alone. Maybe in the church you've been away for a while. And again, I want to say this with a a degree of humility, but I think it needs to be said. It's time to stop using COVID as an excuse to not come to church. Because at this point, it's an excuse and nothing more. It's time to stop using the I've been gone so long I wouldn't feel right coming back in as an excuse. Because it's just an excuse. You're watching online, it's just an excuse. Price of gas isn't that high. Really, that's really that simple. Or any of the other 15 things that you're using as an excuse to disconnect from the community of faith. If Jesus will leave the 99 to go get the one to bring him back to the community, then we need to stop using ridiculous excuses to stay disconnected from the community of faith. And that might make some people mad, and I'm sorry, but that's the way it is. We always make time for what's important to us. And with all that's going on in the world, it's time to stop the games and come home. The discontent you feel in your home, the discontent you feel in your relationships, that's disconnection. That's walking alone. And it's foolishness. It's not what we were asked to do. The lost in this world need the version of you that can only be made by the hand of God. And that's not going to happen while you're watching YouTube on your couch. It happens when iron sharpens iron. 
in the bold process of the community of faith about being connected, being committed.